I invite you this afternoon to turn in your Bibles with me to the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 53. Entitled this message, The Submission of the Lord's Servant. Isaiah chapter 53, you, I trust, recall that I've been working through this wonderful passage of Scripture, this glorious prophecy concerning the Lord's servant during our communion services in the afternoon, about once every three months. And it's a joy to return to Isaiah again, Isaiah chapter 53. And I'll begin reading in verse 7. We'll read, I'll read 7 through 9 for our text for this afternoon. Scripture says, He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Let us pray. Father, we now ask that you would give us eyes to see the prophecy before us. And to see it rightly and to know our Savior better. For truly, it does not matter if a word of God about Christ is written hundreds of years after his death or decades after his death or centuries before his birth as revealed from you, the eternal God, by the Holy Spirit. It is as sure and as true as ever. And we know that the fullness of time and that Jesus Christ came at the right time and, and made manifest what was hidden, revealed what was shrouded in secrecy in the Old Testament. And yet in a passage like this, we behold again the unmistakable marks and character of this one, this servant of, of the Lord of Yahweh, And what he must do, give us, I pray, faith to see Christ in his glory again. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Three points from each of the three verses for this afternoon. Three points about the submission of the Lord's servant. First, the submissive silence of the servant. The submissive silence of the servant. Uh, In a very familiar way, Isaiah begins, verse 7, he was 
oppressed and he was afflicted. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. As we begin this message and we we look at this, these are familiar these are familiar ideas. We've seen this already in Isaiah 53 of how poorly this servant will be treated. Oppression means to beat or to press, act by force against another. Afflicted speaks of humiliation involved with a subduing or an oppression or a violence, a humiliation with that violence. But really, in this oppression and affliction that Jesus endures, we see Isaiah say, Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. What's remarkable, every once in a while as a, as a pastor, you, you see things line up really well. I think that's what we have a little bit today with the morning message and this text of scripture from Isaiah, albeit Luke wasn't focusing on the obedience of Christ to the cross, but this is a, this is a wonderful passage and I never tire of, of looking at, uh, at Isaiah 53. This has been a real treasure to study this as, uh, in preparation of, for these messages. Just a real delight. It is a delight to study the Word of God. It's a great joy. I love it, in fact. Which is right. You want your pastor to enjoy studying the Word of God. But I, I, love, I love it, and to take up a prophecy like this and to see how it speaks of Christ is a remarkable thing. And it brings me joy, and I hope that I can communicate the ideas in an effective way. So I have so, so, my heart is full, and I want to try to communicate that to you in the same way that my heart was full about the temptation of Christ this morning. But Isaiah says he was oppressed, he was afflicted, and in that oppression and affliction, yet he opened not his mouth. What is that all about? Why does... Isaiah speak of the servant's silence. Well, I think there are two reasons. Two reasons. First, to prophesy how Jesus will respond during his trial. To prophesy how Jesus will respond to his trial. I think Isaiah has this partially in view. Matthew 26.63 says, Jesus, as he's before one of the trials during his passion, says, but Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus remained silent. Well, we know that he didn't remain absolutely silent. But that's not Isaiah's point. That's not Matthew's point when he observes that. And yet, each one of the gospel writers point to the relative silence of Jesus. Jesus did speak here and there during his trial. But what that silent, what the relative and overwhelming mark of his silence was all about is really what the second reason that we'll see in a moment of why Jesus was silent. When Jesus 
did open his mouth during his trial. He did not defend himself. He didn't try to escape the wicked judgment of men. He was silent. He would answer a question here or there. But his silence is in part fulfilling this prophecy, but it's also, even more importantly, a mark of submission to the Father's will. In fact, that's, the, that's Isaiah's point. How do we know that's Isaiah's point? Because of the, of the simile that's here. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that, is be, that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. When being sheared or slaughtered, lambs don't fight back. They yield silently, as it were, maybe bleeding a little bit, but, but they don't, they're not fighting back against the, the shear or even the slaughter. In fact, even, they'll even, they've even, lambs and sheep have even been known to lick the hand of the one who is slaughtering it. Now, of course, the brute animals, these sheep and lambs, are not actually obeying. They don't know what's going on. But Jesus' silence, which is like them, was a yielding, was an obeying to the Father's will. And so Jesus endured his oppression and affliction silently, Isaiah is saying, in full obedience to the Father's will. After all, he prayed to the Father, not my will, but thine be done. And this is important. This submission is important because being obedient to the Father all the way through from from his birth and his life, his temptations, and then ultimately at Gethsemane and through the trials by not defending himself, not fighting back in any way, That submission to the Father means that Jesus became a willing sacrifice for sin. A willing sacrifice for sin. He was willingly obedient. He did not die for us kicking and screaming. He did not submit to the Father's will with complaining or resentment. He submitted willingly, with full purpose, to atone for our sins. And such obedience was necessary to purchase our redemption. For there to be a sacrifice for sin, Jesus had to die willingly for us. He could not have gone to the cross against his will. That would not have been obedience to the Father. That would not have been in accordance with the Father's will. And he would not have fulfilled his mission to be our sacrifice. A willing sacrifice was necessary. Jesus could only deal with our sin with his obedience. A lamb 
goes uncomplaining forth the guilt of all men bearing. Romans 5.19 says that for as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And so the silence of Jesus that's here and the silence of Jesus through the trials and the judgment, through the oppression and the affliction, is a mark of his obedience to become a willing sacrifice for sin. If Jesus had died unwillingly, he would not have died obediently. And so the silence of Christ was essential to purchase our redemption. Christ's voluntary obedience was the only way to wipe away all our disobedience. Now, this is a wonderful verse because it highlights Christ's submission to the Father, silently following the Father's will, all through the oppression and the affliction, like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth, not opening his mouth, twice emphasized by Isaiah and then Besides, it says, before his shears is silent. Three times it's mentioned in total. This prophecy is important for those reasons. But I want you to understand. Listen to me. Are you still with me? Listen. This prophecy is important for another really important reason as well. I know that was redundant. Important for another really important reason. But there's something remarkable here I want you to see. What is this man, this suffering servant compared to? It says, like a lamb. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. There's a likeness here to a lamb being sacrificed, to the paschal lamb. The prophet explicitly, Isaiah explicitly likens the Lord's suffering servant to a Passover lamb being slaughtered. And why is that important? One of the amazing things about the New Testament is how it says, it, it says that Christ, it, it says Christ, it, or it refers to Christ with the figure of the divine lamb. We opened our service with that. The next, John one twenty nine, John the Baptist calls Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God. Where does that come from? Is that a revelation given to John? If it was, it'd certainly be legitimate. There are other passages, of course, that refer to Jesus as the Lamb. Can you think of any? Other passages that refer to Jesus as the Lamb? How about Revelation 5? And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw... A lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the world. And then later on in that chapter, worthy, where is it at? Can you think of a passage in the New Testament that refers to the lamb? Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. How about 1 Peter 1? But we are redeemed with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb. 
without blemish or spot. Now, we're very familiar with this language. We use it all the time. We refer to Jesus as the Lamb of God frequently. But you, have, you, have you ever wondered, is this just a New Testament association? Or does it have Old Testament roots? And you might answer, and you'd be right, well, the Old Testament sacrificial system was a type of Christ. But the presence of types themselves doesn't make the connection between the Christ as the Lamb explicit. In other words, we could have these types in the Old Testament. How do we know that the Christ is supposed to be a Lamb? What we see in Isaiah 53, 7 is that this association between the Christ and the Lamb, the divine Lamb for sin, goes back deeply into the sacred prophetic writings of the Old Testament. He's referred to as a lamb, the suffering servant, who is the Christ, is a lamb. Now we can begin to make the connection between the Christ and the lamb and the types of the Old Testament sacrificial system. It's all beginning to weave together. In other words, if a believing Jew was really reading his Old Testament carefully, he would have been able to discern that the Christ who would come would suffer and die for sins. We've already seen that in this chapter. Indeed, as a lamb, you could even call him the lamb, the Passover lamb who was slaughtered. And this tells us that the Christ to come truly was in the sovereign plan and will of God, the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. He truly did suffer the severe wrath of God due to us for sins. We learn here that just as the Paschal Lamb of old shed its blood to protect Israel from the death angel, the Christ's own precious blood would be shed for us. And he would submit to it in the Father's plan brings all these ideas together. His suffering, he's oppressed and he's afflicted. His submission, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Wonderful, wonderful prophecy about Jesus Christ here in this passage. And so this is the submissive silence of the servant. Let's, um, before I, I leave this point, can I, can I make two quick points of application for us? We could learn from Jesus here. We could learn from him how to submit to the will of God. Oh, that we would stop our complaining and bitterness when the sovereign plans of God bring crosses and trials across our lives. After all, this is how Jesus applies this prophecy to us. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.23, And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And the point that Peter is making is, so should we. We ought to learn to suffer obediently and silently like Jesus did. I have a quote here from Charles Simeon, a great preacher from ages past. 
He says, nothing can exceed the beauty and propriety of the images by which our Lord's patience is here illustrated. As a sheep, when the shearer is stripping it of its clothing, makes neither noise nor resistance, and as a lamb sports about even while being driven to the slaughter, yea, and licks the very hand that is lifted up to slay it, so our blessed Lord endured all his sufferings silently, willingly, and with expressions of love to his very murderers. Twice is his silence noted in the text because it indicated a self-government, which under his circumstances, no created being could have exercised. The most eminent saints have opened their mouths in complaints, both against God and man. Job, that distinguished pattern of patience, even cursed the day of his birth. Moses, the meekest of the sons of men, who had withstood numerous provocations, yet at last spake so unadvisedly with his lips that he was excluded on account of it from earthly Canaan. And even the Apostle Paul, than whom no human being ever attained a higher eminence in any grace, broke forth into revilings against God's high priest, who ordered him to be smitten contrary to the law. But... There was no guile in the lips of Jesus, nor did he ever once open his mouth in a sinful or unbecoming manner. We can learn from Jesus to submit how quickly we defend ourselves when others attack us or accuse us. And Jesus is giving us a wonderful example of silence. But one other thing I want you to note here is that Jesus is silent no more. Now, he's submissive and obedient, if I can put it that way, but he is silent no longer in here. I have a, if you'll pardon another quote, would you pardon another quote? It's really good. Thank you for allowing me another quote. This one's from Calvin. But it's so good. Besides, when it is said to us that by keeping silence he acquired righteousness for us, we see that such silence brings however the blessing that it was to support our case and that he is now our advocate before God, always having his mouth open. I love that. That is to say, having his intercession ready to remedy all the offenses that we have committed. He has acquired the office that if we are convicted in our consciences before God and we must receive sentence and we have no reply to excuse ourselves, nevertheless, we shall be defended by him and God will judge us innocent since our faults have been thus repaired. It's because of Jesus' silence that he can open his mouth and defend you before the tribunal of God. His mouth is no longer silent. It speaks blessing and righteousness and peace. All right. Two more points, and they're not as long as that one. So the submissive silence of the servant we have seen. How about the submissive substitution of the servant? In verse 8, he begins, Isaiah begins, by oppression and judgment. He was taken away. Oppression speaks to the brutal treatment Christ received during his trial. And then judgment, the judgment that, the false judgment by false witnesses that the Jews brought against Jesus during his trial. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And Isaiah continues, and as for his generation, who consider that he was cut off out of the land of the living? 
and among the people of his time really understood or comprehended. Even his own disciples were baffled. We were reading in Mark last last, uh, last night as a family. We were reading the account where Jesus is headed toward Jerusalem. And he tells the disciples, and, the, and everybody, and the disciples are amazed. They think, hey, the kingdom's coming. And, and Jesus turns around and he says, I'm going, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed, handed over to sinners, judged, falsely accused, and will die, and on the third day will rise again. In the very next passage, James and John come up and say to Jesus, hey, if we ask you for something, will you promise to give it to us? And Jesus is like, what do you want? Well, we want to sit on your right and left hand. No one understood. No one. Can you imagine? How do you like being misunderstood? Jesus was misunderstood. No one considered. He was cut off out of the land of the living. Cut off out of the land of the living. This is the kind of thing that meant a lot to a Jew. You don't get cut out of the land of the living. That's your inheritance. That's your part in the kingdom. To be cut off out of the land, land of the living, you might as well be dead. Of course, that's part of what Isaiah is talking about. But as a wicked man, no inheritance, no part in the promised land for Jesus. That was the point. He was cut off out of the land of the living. Jesus was cut off. He was crucified he died, and lots of men were living, remaining. The righteous one had died, and yet the land of the living was filled with sinners. And yet, Isaiah says, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for a purpose? That is, Isaiah says, stricken for the transgression of my people. Stricken for the transgression of my people. He was not struck for his own sins. He was not cut off for his own sins. He was cut off for the transgressions of my people. He is a substitute, a substitute for sin, for our sins, again in this passage. But we've already seen this. Do you remember the times that we've seen substitution in Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6? Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced, verse 5, for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement or punishment that brought us peace. He was punished so that we could have peace by his wounds. His, the pulling apart of his body, the ripping of his flesh, the blood-torn wounds. By those wounds we are healed. And the Lord has laid on him, verse 6, the iniquity of us all, substitution. Oh, I never tire of talking about substitution. I never get, it never gets old to me. At least it shouldn't ever get old to us. Substitution is a wonderful doctrine, and it's here again in verse 8. He was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. The reason Jesus endured these sins was for our, or these, these, this oppression and affliction was for our sins. He who was sinless bore our sins. There was a purpose behind this prophesied mistreatment, this prophesied death. 
The purpose of this prophesied death in Isaiah is he, is he will be the sin bearer. He does this not for his sins, but for ours in the will of God. So that he can take our sins away. He can take the, the, the brunt of God's wrath. The blow upon him was God, the severity of God's wrath in judgment and condemnation. That we deserved for our sins. And this is what Jesus endured on the cross for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Corinthians 15.3 It's at the heart of the gospel. When Paul explains the gospel, he says, it, Christ died for our sins. Stricken for the transgressions of my people. This is at the heart of Christianity. It's the heart of our good news. Christ endured all he did for you and for your sins. He endured the death you deserve to pay. He suffered the wrath that you should have received. And he suffered judgment by wicked men so that you could be freed from divine judgment though you deserved it. And by being cut off out of the land of the living by his enemies, he opened up to us the gates of eternal life in his glorious kingdom. And yet, Isaiah says, who considered that he was cut off for this? How tragic it is to be ignorant of the reason Jesus came and died and lived for us. Who considered? Do you consider all that Jesus has done for you. Do you know it? Does your mind go to think of it often? Do you remember that you're not saved by your righteousness or your good works? You're a sinner and that you have a Savior. Do you consider this? Do you know it? Christ's substitution for sin was also an act of submission. It was the Father's will that he should be the sin substitute. And this too was the plan of God, and Christ willingly submitted to it. But then finally in verse 9, we see the submissive sinlessness of the servant. Submissive silence in verse 7. Submissive substitution in verse 8. Submissive sinlessness in verse 9. This is an interesting verse, and I think I can keep you here for a few more moments. I'm almost finished this afternoon. I want you to think about those first two lines. Isn't it kind of a strange way to put it? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. These almost seem to conflict. In fact, I would argue they do. A wicked man's grave and then a laid with the rich. How do these go together? I think it's an obvious element of surprise and unexpected change. And when we think about Jesus' crucifixion and his burial, I think we can understand what Isaiah is foretelling. It especially becomes clear when we, when we look through the lens of history. They made his grave with the wicked. Speaks of what the murderers of Jesus intended to do with his body. 
Crucifixion was a horrible way to die. I think you all know that. But it wasn't simply a, a horrible way to die. It was a horrible way for your remains to be handled. For the body was very often, these are wicked men, they're crucified, and they would be left. The dead bodies, the corpse would be left on the cross. And you can, your imagination can go to if you, you know, what, what that even looks like. It means decay and, 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 and animals, birds coming and taking bites out of the corpse. And this is what they did with the corpses of the crucified. To be crucified meant you would be treated, your corpse would be treated among the worst. And this was the intent and plan of undoubtedly the Romans, if not the Jews as well. And yet, in the very next line, we see things change. He's actually buried with a rich man. His grave is with a rich man. And this, we know that this happens, that two rich men come and care for Jesus' corpse, the human remains of Jesus. Nicodemus brings pounds and pounds, probably upwards of 70 pounds of incense, um, of incense and, and burial spices. Joseph of Arimathea gives to Jesus his grave. Why? Because there were people who knew who this man was. It's something of an, an attestation to Jesus and who he is, his person, and his character. In fact, they recognize that he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. And so they care for him. Though he was treated as a criminal, he had done no one any wrong. He had never done violence. Jesus had helped others. He had healed them. He had fed them. There was no deceit in his mouth. His lips never uttered anything untrue. He never lied or slandered. His teaching was true, the very word of God. And Isaiah foretells that the Christ to come, the suffering servant, is, is one who is sinless. No violence, no act of sin, no deceit in his mouth, no sinful words. These crimes standing for any sin of action, any sin of word. Jesus was sinless, the sinless Son of God. And here is yet another aspect of the coming Christ's submission to the Father. He will obey the Father perfectly. He will do no wrong to any other man or woman Indeed, he will do them only good. His words will be filled with truth and love. He will never use his words to slander, gossip, lie, twist, tempt, or destroy. He will never hurt another person. And Isaiah is telling us that Christ to come will be sinless. He will never transgress God's law. He will never have an impure thought. He lived every moment of his incarnate life in full and free and joyful submission to his heavenly Father. Even when facing the most fierce temptations, he remained obedient and submissive to the Father, as we saw this morning. And this continued throughout his youth, into manhood, and ultimately to the cross. And this is what makes him our substitute. We could have no other but a sinless Savior. And so I close with the words of Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4 
where the scripture says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He had done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth. And so the author of Hebrews says, then let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And this is what we did when we came to Christ in saving faith. This is what we do day after day. This is what this table represents. A coming to the throne of grace, remembering our Savior and his grace, of knowing that he is our Redeemer and that he is our only Savior and that he has not only forgiven us and justified us, but that his grace, the grace that his cross represents, his broken body and shed blood, is what will give us the grace to overcome our own temptations and live a godly life for his sake. What a great high priest we have. So we see in this passage the submissive silence of the servant, the submissive substitution of the servant, and the submissive sinlessness of the servant. Let us close in a word of prayer. We'll go to the table. Let us pray. Father, I ask now that you would help us to behold the glory of Jesus Christ again, and that you would strengthen us, O God, through his grace. Here we have a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, and there is no other, and we confess him and hold fast to him. And we know that he sympathizes with our weakness. He is humiliated, incarnate, Son of God. He was tempted just as we are in every respect, and yet he never sinned, and this is why he is our substitute. And even in his submission to you, in his oppression and affliction, we see his obedience to your will. And so it is with confidence that we draw near to his throne of grace and look to our Jesus Christ, the Savior, for mercy and grace to help in time of need. And as we partake of the table, give us to remember our Savior again. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.